listeners, I'm Paige Smith with Below the Radar, a knowledge mobilization podcast. Below the Radar is created by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement and is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. On this episode, Hilda Fernandez and Fernanda Souza join host Am Johal to talk about urban intimacy and the good life. Both Hilda and Fernanda are psychoanalysts and therapists who practice in Vancouver. In their practice, they come across a variety of folks from different backgrounds and cultures, each with their own preconceived notions and experiences of love, intimacy, and what it means to have a good life. From technology, intergenerational differences, polyamory, and more, Hilda and Fernanda take us into the conversations they're having on urban intimacy, the good life, and how it's all changing with the times. Welcome to Below the Radar. We're really excited to have Fernanda Souza and Hilda Fernandez with us today. They're both psychoanalysts and therapists. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to be talking about urban intimacy and the good life today. And I'm wondering if both of you can uh, introduce yourselves a little bit more. My name is Hilda Fernandez. I work as a Lacanian psychoanalyst and a psychotherapist. I have been working in private practice since 2007, and also I have been working for Vancouver Coastal Health as a therapist specifically for people who have been touched by suicide. My experience is mainly a one-to-one with adults recently, but I used to work with kids and families, but not any longer. And I'm very happy to be here. Yes, and I am Fernanda. I have a private practice in downtown Vancouver, and I think I identify myself as uh, mainly a relational therapist who sees a number of people who are in relationships and also families. I think that my approach would be identified as attachment-informed and also very trauma-sensitive. But then I think the conversation today will invite us to think a little bit more about what that even means in terms of being you know, attachment-informed. I think that there are ways in which uh, today we'll challenge some of those notions for couples' work yeah, mm-hmm. or for relationship work. And so as, as someone who's uh, working as a psychotherapist in downtown Vancouver in private practice, what are you noticing in terms of current trends with respect to intimate relationships, marrying, cohabiting, uh, hooking up, all of those kinds of um, aspects of you know what comes into the, the room for you who works in private practice? Yeah, that's a very pertinent question. What comes into the room these days? I think that more than ever, I am noticing a shift in terms of how people are connecting intimately and sexually with each other in a, in a long-term committed relationship. And I think that the trend is really around challenging what might have been before taken for granted in terms of the dyad union of the coupleship that we would have seen in the generations past. And I think that even though some of the presentations may be along the lines of becoming interested in consensual non-monogamies and polyamories, there's still individuals who may come, and I think Hilda can speak even more about that. There's still individuals who are coming and thinking that there's something missing in their lives if they're not matching up 
and to a relationship that might be much more similar to what they might have seen in previous generations in terms of a diad, a more conventional, traditional diad in, uh, in the family unit, maybe even the suburban family unit. Mm-hmm. Hilda, a few years ago, you were involved in a conference on love where a number of these same notions were, were discussed. And I'm wondering sort of your take on contemporary relationships, urban life, intimacies. Yeah, I believe that what I see nowadays compared with um, even few years ago or even more like 20 years ago when I arrived in Vancouver, I think that there's a significant change in terms of uh, sexual politics given the great kind of struggles and political gains of different groups such as the queer, the transsexual, the intersexual groups that have pushed the kind of sexual politics to a different kind. And this is obviously reflecting in the individual that look for uh, services in terms of psychotherapy, psychoanalysis. However, I am noticing, and I, I would like to, to see how, how uh, Fernanda reflects on that at the level of the couple. I'm seeing more and more loneliness. And, and this is not like all the old good times. I think that the, really the changes that have occurred in the last, well, 50 years consistently, it has created a relationship with others that is more kind of lonely. People are more alone in terms of the, the possibilities to connect. Technology is tricky because it brings the possibility of connecting with others through kind of uh, social media and whatnot. But in the embodiment of the relations, I see a lot of uh, loneliness. And then Vancouver, it's a cold city. And I, do, I say it as an immigrant, as a settler, but also I have heard that from other people from Canada, from Quebec, from the prairies, from the Northwest Territories, the, the Maritimes is what I meant. Uh, it's a difficult city to make friendships, to find love. And that's what I am seeing in the day-to-day, in the one-to-one. Are you noticing in terms of differences in generation, ethnicity, immigration status, socioeconomic status, different parts of relationships coming into the, the clinical setting? Yes, I think that one way through which I would access this notion of loneliness would be by noticing that sometimes when people are in a coupleship, in a diad, they may still find a profound sense of loneliness. And I have heard in my room that sometimes the sense of loneliness that comes up when you're lying next to someone from whom you feel massively disconnected may be even more, I'd say even traumatizing than the sense of uh, loneliness that you might have when you are on your own. So I think that that's very, that's a very interesting piece that does come up in my, in my practice. Now, in more direct way to your question, um, I think that there are massive shifts intergenerationally that are also unfolding. As an immigrant myself, who comes from a collectivist culture and having a lot of clients who are first generation or who may be relatively recent immigrants themselves, and being able to compare that with what may be the experience of people who have been here for multiple generations, I think that there are different expectations and different pressures that they are experiencing in terms of their notions of what might constitute a good life. 
if in past generations, maybe up to up to at least 50, 30 years ago, the notion of a good life would have been solidly being in a coupleship, being in a family unit, being in a family unit that could, you know, be transporting itself from a more urban center even to a suburban life, that now maybe there is something that's happening for those who are millennials now, as one pertinent example, I think, of people who are coming in and who are talking about how their notion of a good life may be very different from what their parents' notions of a good life would have been. And that might not include necessarily the coupleship in that traditional way or even the formation of family and how they themselves may have experienced. I don't know if that responds to your question. I think that as we keep on talking, we'll probably go a little bit deeper into that in terms of, say, how coming from a collectivist culture may have a particular kind of influence that might be different from someone who has migrated to Vancouver, to speak to the coldness of Vancouver, from the prairies that might still connect with a notion of family that might be more traditional than what we're seeing unfolding in the very urban center of this very progressive city in every in, in, mm-hmm. in so many ways. Yeah, yeah. I just want to add, I am working recently with a lot of uh, teenagers, like 14, 19, and I used to work with that population in Mexico as well. And I noticed right there a significant change in terms of the ease in which they engage in talking about their sexualities and kind of the acceptance of the fluidity of the gender, right? Which I never observed before. One of the questions I wanted to follow up with was just around uh, the extent to which the kind of technological dissonance from cell phones, the instantaneousness of Instagram and other pieces, how it distorts relationships, everything from Tinder to other pieces the kind of proximity and instantaneity that people can follow up on to intimate scenarios, the extent to which this has an impact. I wrote a paper that is called Will a Cyber Steal My Jouissance? You actually organized that event for Visor, and it's now published. I talk a little bit about how the technological database, digital technologies, they are using all the sentiment, all our energy to profit from our most intimate sentiments, fantasies, unconscious labor. So what I see nowadays is that all the platforms really what are presenting the world with is a version of the self as a commodity. So I kind of uh, have my profile. We all have that. We are somehow, well, there's still some people resisting to get into any platforms of social media, but at the same time, maintain certain connection with uh, groups that are not locally or kind of not so proximate geographically. But I think that is tending to have a disembodiment of relations, like it is creating an obsessional way of dealing with the mind with your own self through the fantasy of what you are and how you project. And in the day-to-day embodiment exchanges, let's say if you like someone or if you don't like someone, you have to come together with some sort of a response right in the moment, body to body. And that affects very differently the way we engage with others. For example, I see when I defer from my political views with someone in the flesh, 
there's some dialogue, whereas in Twitter, for example, or even in Facebook, it doesn't produce the same because then you are protected through the technological device, these gadgets that are now a part of our cyber condition in a way, right? So I really think that it's, yeah, it's, it's a form of commodifying love. It's a form of commodifying dating. And some people obviously go for that because that's available and that's a way of kind of finding love in a way. But some other people, in my experience, clinically complain about the artificiality or sometimes the discrepancy of the picture someone looked like 60 years before. <laughs> and then, yeah, it's kind of very uh, disappointing. Some others, however, find in technology the courage to really try. So it has many different perspectives. Mm-hmm. Um, I love how you are speaking about what you're seeing in the room from the perspective of the individual work. And I'm also thinking, and I think that that's a way of connecting with your previous question, and that even as I am also noticing, as you were speaking, this commodification of the self and the commodification and maybe superficialization of, of relationships, I'm also thinking that the possibility that technology or technological connections have brought in is a challenge of what might have been the reproduction of more conventional relationships of the past in the following sense. If in other times, before this facilitation that the technology has done for people to pair up, maybe you would have been much more inclined to pair up with someone that would have been more contained in what past generations would have thought to be ideal, and that with the possibility of connecting so much outside of your regular jurisdiction, geographical jurisdiction, you're also exposed to a much broader possibility of connecting. I say that you end up, in a sense, diversifying your portfolio of potential sexual intimate connections, and I think that that provides possibilities of connecting across, you know, intersectional nodal points that might be very different than would have been done otherwise. So to translate that into something simpler would be how someone who may be, you know, first generation or fifth generation would have had access to someone else who might have a very different social position, social, historical, cultural position. And without technology, that would have been an impossibility. And I think that there's some beauty in that. Yeah, uh, yeah. Does that make sense? Totally. Uh-huh. And I want to challenge something else in what you are saying. I'm a romantic. <laughs> I have to confess. And I think that sometimes that I have heard in what people says is there's, uh, you approach someone knowing already the person in the first date, right? Like, what about those times that you just run into someone and just, you get surprised by their gaze and then you just fell in love, right? The, the organic encounter. The organic encounter. I'm, a, I'm like an old-fashioned probably and romantic, but I think that that part, it's kind of missing through the technologically-based dating mm-hmm. and yeah, that's okay. That's part of the new world. Mm-hmm. When, when you say diversifying your portfolio, it sounds neoliberal in a, in a sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah to, very much economics to, to, language. Uh-huh. This, the, to, I guess there is a kind of 
perhaps an anxiety, a frustration, or a blind spot that's arising from the traditional dyad relationship? Where does this anxiety from your viewpoint, from the perspective of being in a clinical setting, arise from that's actually interrogating and raising questions about that kind of traditional dyad relationship? Mm -hmm. I think that part of that anxiety... I want to go back and talk a little bit about the kinds of trainings that couples therapists and couples, emphasis on couples therapists, get. So someone who would have gone to a graduate program to become a therapist, to become a, a registered clinical counselor or a registered psychologist, presumably would have to get a certain specific training in order to see couples. And nowadays there's basically two very strong, mainstream, visible, and interconnected trainings that are recognized in North America. One would have been from the United States, the Gottman Method, and from Canada, there would have been the work of Sue Johnson, Emotionally Focused Therapy. And they're both informed by attachment, attachment theory and, and, and research. And what I think is so interesting about this training is that if you go to the theoretical underpinnings of attachment theory and research, you will notice that the notion of a secure attachment is connected with the notion of a diet. So the idea would be something like this, say, from the cradle to the grave. So from the cradle, you know, a child who is born and needs to count on at least one consistent attachment figure would get from a very asymmetrical framework, would get care, would take care from an adult, a consistent adult. So say provision of care comes from the adult into the child. It's like the surrogate prefrontal cortex of the parent providing support, appropriate, you know, appropriate support, nurturance to the child. Never, never the child providing care to the parent. That would be parentification in the old language of, you know, family systems or other kinds of training. I'm sure Hilda is familiar with it. Now, romantic attachment or attachment theory and research informing couples' work is a relationship that's mutually reciprocal between two adults. So one adult's prefrontal cortex with another adult's prefrontal cortex. And if you have had, so, so the story goes like this, if you have had secure attachment, meaning you are, I'm going to use the N word, normal, then you would have had secure attachment from, from childhood and you're able to take turns in your adult romantic sexual relationship. You, there is a provision of care that's taking turns. So symmetrical in this way. Now, this is a model that's based on the notion of a diet. So basically the training that most of us will get to work with couples is based on the notion of a diet. And anything that diverges from that would necessarily have to be in to a certain degree, if, if, even if it's not spoken about very openly, to a certain degree, would have to be pathologizing. And I have a problem with that. Because what I actually see from different cultural perspectives is that there is a possibility, and I've, I've seen some interesting research to that effect as well, there is a possibility of creating secure attachment with more than one figure. I, I'm thinking, for example, I grew up in Brazil, and I'm thinking of, let's say, Maria's family, um, who would have had her 
grandmother around the house and she would have had her mother around the house and her aunts around the house. And Maria would have called, say, Mama Kika, Mama Nana, Mama um, Luisa. You know, she would call mom all of these different figures. And I don't think that I am qualified or anyone is qualified to deauthorize or to challenge Maria's perception of a secure attachment with all of these figures at once, right? So I think that for the next little while, there will be a lot of interesting research that's going to collapse the idea of an attachment that's appropriate only if connected and grounded on the Diad relationship. And I think that that's the model that needs to serve couples or, or relationship therapists when they are in the room with people who are subscribing to a consensual non-monogamy and a full-on organized polyamory. And so maybe maybe I'll stop at that for this piece and uh, I'll catch up later as more stuff comes in. <laughs> Does this make any sense yeah, to you? Totally, yes. totally. Yeah, it's kind of how to decolonize in a way ways of approaching attachment and how that polyamory and consensual non-monogamy. I was going to say non-monogamy, consensual, uh, non-consensual monogamy. <laughs> That's the other thing. But I wanted to respond a little bit to this, the couple and its uh, urban discontent in this moment. And I could say that from a psychoanalytic perspective, since Freud and then with Lacan, there's a dissatisfaction there's a non-sexual relationship, meaning that there's no reciprocity, that there's always a gap that is going to be uh, present in couples, right? Like there's no perfect relationship ever. There's always something that doesn't connect, that doesn't necessarily maintain that imaginary diet that we imagine. And in light of that, in light of the drive particularly, what do we do? The drive is a force that comes from a sexual source that Lacan says won't satisfy by means of any moderation. So it's excessive by nature, right? So what I want to say is that monogamy is system that goes against the psyche of uh, human beings, right? We are always wanting something else. The desire is the desire of the other. There's no way that you are going to be interested one and only in one person forever. So because there's something, for example... A floating signifier. That's right. And there's this uh, phenomenon that is called the Coleridge effect. It's basic research with animals, but it has been also research with humans in these kind of scientific approaches to sexuality. And they find that the Coleridge effect means that people get renewed sexual desire when they encounter a different sexual partner. So in terms of our psyche, our desire is always for something new, for something different. Now, that desire, that part of the drive, let's say, encounters our ethical limit and our love, right, with our loved ones. And then it's how do we go about that kind of arrangement of the non-sexual relationship in an ethical way and honoring the love for the person that you have, but also honoring your own self. How not to betray yourself in trying to do something with your sexual drive, with your erotic uh, needs, with your yeah, kind of the boredom that sometimes comes from monogamic relations. And 
I think that this is something that I hear very clearly in, in my practice. When people say, I love my wife, I don't want to cheat her, but I just feel really dissatisfied sexually. And she doesn't want to go and open the relationship. And then it's, it's kind of sitting with that question, what are you going to do, right? In light of this truth, this erotic truth, how you can sustain ethically. And some people are very afraid because uh, immediately they imagine some uh, cynicism or some kind of solution that is going to go against their values. But the, the, the question is, can you sustain whatever you decide in terms of your own erotic truth, as, as I mentioned before, in an ethical way? Can you sustain that? That's the ongoing question in, in the treatment. In Lacanian terms, then, where does the polyamorous mm-hmm. scenario function? Where does it rest in terms of his work and, and you working as a Lacanian analyst? Yeah, he, that I am aware he never kind of really worked particularly on that, maybe just just like a, almost like footnotes. But I could say that it relates from a Lacanian perspective to the non-sexual relationship. So trying to reconsider the kind of discontent of the sexual relationship with a different modality. From this perspective, it could say polyamory, might allow you to get, like, let's say, another partner or whatever, but it doesn't save you from the non-sexual relationship. In other words, polyamorous relationships, they, they are going to encounter rivalry again. They are going to encounter difficulties. They are going to encounter boredom. They, they are going to encounter the same, that the, the diet. So there's not a panacea to resolve the non-sexual relationship, to the discontent of sex and love. Mm-hmm. You you reference a sort of uh, gap in the literature, Fernanda, in terms of how people go about trying to think through polyamory within the clinical setting. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about that, because in some sense it's it's mm-hmm. referenced as a kind of pathology, but what you're seeing is maybe something a bit more complicated, and in some contexts this can be a healthy scenario. Yeah, I think there's less of a gap in the literature, especially literature that I've been accessing more recently, and more of a gap in the training programs that are available for therapists to do and get training in uh, relationship work. I think I want to respond this by connecting further with something that Hilda said that I thought was extremely important, which is this notion that our human nature is such that it seems to be compelled by transgression compelled by an impulse towards transgression. Completely. Yes. And I think that that's very much what, uh, let's go back all the way to our friend uh, Freud here, mm-hmm. the, you know, as a connection with a life drive, right? And in expanding. And so if I bring it back to attachment theory and research, maybe what is referred to sometimes as the primary relationship in polyamorous connections, it may be the safe haven and the secure base that is provided for one to expand from that in adventure or in transgressing. And you're right, even in polyamorous relationships that have been very ethically organized and organized through a lot of communication, a lot of dialogue. In fact, you will see a lot more communication and dialogue and people who are interested in um, negotiating a concessional monogamy than you will in couples who are not having these conversations, the ads that are not having these conversations, then what I do notice as well is that even when 
all of these conversations happen, there are still issues with respect to transgression. And they may look like this. The way that we're going to organize our relationship now is that we are open and we are consensually non-monogamous. However, there is this group of people here, say people at work, that you know we're deciding that we're not going to have relationships with. Or there may be containment of certain people as forbidden, as off-bounds for the development of that relationship. And of course, what we see is They exactly, will go for that, exactly. <laughs> that's exactly how it ends up unfolding. Not every time, but I do see it often enough. Now... I think that another piece that I would like to bring up and might be in the direction of, of responding to your question is the notion of how in polyamories, in full-on developed polyamories in North America and more even so in the United States than here from what I've been reading and, and, and from what I'm noticing in the room is that there is an interest in, in, a, in an investment in the notion of a primary and then what may be other relationships, but there is the centralization of this primary. But now in my office, what I'm seeing is, because Vancouver is such a progressive place in so many ways, there's a true interest in democratizing it further and collapsing binaries further. So one of the binaries uh, or one of the hierarchizations that is being collapsed is this notion of primary because it creates a hierarchy between who gets to be the primary and who gets to not be the primary. Right. Even if who I'm seeing in the room is one particular diad of the polyamory. Now, the interesting question to me becomes the question of, you know, the political question, the political question that creates legal boundaries on the material that are also connected, the, the, the material uh, dimension of these people's lives. Property. Exactly. Property, who gets to count as a spouse in extended health care, who gets to say there are so many ways in which legally the couple is still being sustained materially, even if symbolically there are all kinds of other conversations that are also happening. Now, the other part that I think is really interesting, and it's, it's, I think it's a rather controversial piece that I'm noticing in my room, and I know that my sample is very uh, definitely a selective bias in who comes to do this kind of work in therapy. But what I am noticing is um, two, two interesting trends that I think connect with not just intergenerational differences, but also cross-cultural differences. One is that some of my Latin American, particularly Brazilian, but not exclusively, couples, for example, uh, if a couple who identifies as a, as a gay couple comes to me, they may be less aware of this conversation about polyamory or concessional monogamies if they have immigrated more recently. So this helps me to think about how, okay, the context of Latin America as more religiously inclined, more Catholicly inclined, may still be reproducing more that model of marriage that was more conventionally established than, say, someone who might be third, fourth generation Canadian. And the other piece is how, at least in my very biased sample, uh, those who seem to be most interested in collapsing binaries with respect to, say, primary relationships and who may not identify themselves in a particular gender position or in a particular sexual orientation position. So they're, they're very invested in collapsing all of these binary ways of, of thinking. They are sometimes in my practice exclusively, they belong to groups who are 
privileged, at least by virtue of what would have been the conceptualization of race. And that helps me to think, and, I, and this is the part that I think is controversial, but I am noticing it, and I have questions about that. I don't have answers. I have questions about that, and maybe you can speak to it as well, Hilda. What I'm noticing is that people who may belong to a marginalized, racialized group may not be as invested in collapsing all binaries, including their own ethnic racialized identity, because sometimes that is what helped them access resources. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of affirmative action for many, say, in the context of the American South. And so this is one of the questions that I have. And I, and I walk from it from a national background that conceptualized race very differently along the lines of miscegenation rather than the lines of one-drop rule Jim Crow segregation that would have happened in the United States. And so I get really curious about that, about the meaning of that in collapsing binaries, who gets to collapse binaries, who gets to even be empowered enough to be fully invested in collapsing binaries entirely, and who may still want to subscribe to what Gayatri Spivak called strategic essentialism, which is to create some kind of a container around one's identity, at least as a temporarily, provisionally connected signifier only for the accessing of resources, not to essentialize and to think of as existing in the real, but it is in being symbolized provisionally, strategically, just for virtue of accessing resources. Right, I, right, uh, yeah, right. so yeah. I think that there, there is a, there's an important question here that I don't have an answer for, and I, again, I realize that my sample is very biased, but it's something that I got interested in, in noticing. And to bring it back to the notion of polyamory again is when there's a couple in front of me and there's a little bit of uh, a discrepancy in commitment to, to being polyamorous, but maybe one or, or maybe even both are really not wanting to hierarchize because of their ethical commitment. They are not wanting to hierarchize the notion of primary relationship and other relationships. I'm thinking about the material effects of that. You know, because we don't, we certainly don't have a framework, a legal framework that allows, for example, for three people to get married, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. I just wanted yes, to please. point out um, uh -huh. there, there's a study that was conducted in the University of Manchester by Christian Kless, and he precisely talks about that that you, uh, Fernanda, brought here so eloquently about the what could be the repercussions in the, the intimate practices to um, turn polyamory or non-consensual monogamy into a sexual orientation or an identity. He kind of uh, highlights that it loses the possibility of maintaining this queerness, that in search of trying to gain some political and material gains, such as insurance against criminalization of bigamy, etc., that it loses that fluidity. So it's an impasse in a way, right? There, there's a material reality that that needs to be sorted out by legal kind of gains. But at the same time, by doing that, you kind of engage again in this dyadic, in this kind of normativizing, categorizing boxes that put relations mm -hmm, into. Mm -hmm, yeah. I'm just wondering in terms of the psychoanalytic context where the principle of 
the psychoanalytic principle of lack is brought into considering the polyamorous situation because in some senses, as you're describing, it can be healthy and thought through. In other cases, it's coming from a lack of something or some other things within the dyadic context. And how do you think that through from a psychoanalytic point of view? Well, we are all in lack, right? <laughs> we are all in lack. Good thing, because that is what allows us to desire, right? Uh, it's what uh, allows us to really engage in exchanges. If you are saturated, if you are complete, then you are dead or you are suture for any exchange. Yeah, we need uh, that space to let the other enter. Beautifully said. Yeah, right? Like uh, for this exchange. So the lack in a, in a relationship, it's, it's a very important term. Rather than seeing it as pathology or kind of a unhealthy, I could say that a couple that cherish the lack, it's a more kind of functional or more satisfied couple. The lack meaning that there's something that keeps desiring in the couple, right? That there's something that allows one of the couple to bring flowers and the other to cook for the other and uh, the other to start like, a, I don't know, something of that courtship that can happen after 20 years or can happen after three months, right? That that lack of I want something else with you. That lack is healthy. It's, it allows to reinvent love in the couple or the triad or whatever. I still think that love, as Badu says, is, a, is an issue of the two. And I always think that, for example, with polyamory, there's always some discourses that say this is more like a communal form of love. But love is complicated. I agree with, uh, for example, with this great poet from Mexico, Octavio Paz. He says the Republic could be only through friendship, not through lovers. Why? Because then you could be in rivalry. You could be like, no, she's mine, he's mine, and etc. Whereas friendship is what would allow really certain community. I imagine that also in the polyamory, friendship is an important element and not only these two of the love. But anyways, going back to the lack, I think that a couple that cherished the lack is uh, healthy or more satisfied. I like always to think the mainstream concept of health more in terms of satisfaction and what people call pathology more related to the level of suffering or dissatisfaction that the symptom brings you, right? Like we all have symptoms and we have to deal with them and figure out what to do with them. And and I think that the analysis precisely goes towards how do you convert these suffering, this pain into something that satisfies and at the same time asserts you socially with others. Yeah, I think that I only have one small comment. I thought I thought that Hilda spoke about the lack in such a sophisticated way. I always get impressed with Hilda speaking. And then I also want to bring in the notion of compersion, which is the pleasure of seeing another or seeing your lover with another, with another lover, and how I am witnessing, I'm getting to witness clients even re-eroticize their dyad 
their original diad or their, you know, one of their diads through a connecting with this compersion, with this happiness for seeing his lover or, or their lover or her lover with another. And I think that that's really something that I get really curious about and noticing in my room. And from here, I want to see if there's a way to connect. And I, I know I'm thinking out loud here, so if you bear with me, um, I'm wondering how we can think further in terms of community building. Maybe not in the way that Pass would have spoken, but in a way that may still be community building or the development of a village that may no longer be in a city like Vancouver, where many were not born here, or if born here, they may still be living a life that's very much you know, outside of their original milieu. And so I keep thinking that polyamory may well be a way of developing a village in which you get to have different needs met by different participants, by different partners. One of the most compelling examples that I've heard of that experience, in addition to my clients, uh, and it's one that's very visible in the U.S., is attorney Diana Adams speaks very openly and she helps to write policy. Or she, she, she works with a lot of poly families in the U.S. and she speaks about her own experience. She's, she's an advocate for polyamory and she's highly consulted around the legal frameworks that can still be protective of people who want to be together in a family unit, in a family set up along the lines of polyamory. And her description of how she and her primary partner, she does speak of a primary partner, were planning to have a child, that they had a number of people who were very consistent in their lives as lovers, who they absolutely wanted to elect to participate in the raising of this child. And in listening to her speak, I kept thinking about some of the parents that are in my room, and especially if they don't have their own villages, their own parents around them, how challenging it is to start mm-hmm. a family when you don't have you know, your village around you and how this could be, if well-developed, w- w- always with the best interest of the child in mind, this could be a replacement of what might have been the village for our grandparents, for our parents. Maybe I'm not as romantic as you, Hilda, but I am certainly an utopian. I'm oh. certainly an, an idealist. And so I keep thinking that that might be, you know, one of the frontiers that could be developed further to create a better experience in raising families rather than the isolation of the couple that is suburban and that may be, you know, experiencing all kinds of postpartum conditions as they are living in that more isolated state. Even in that, you know, in the reproduction of the family unit, I hear a lot about that experience too in my room with couples who are not subscribing to anything other than the traditional way of being a couple. And I am in no way, I know that probably by now, there may be a wondering whether I am some kind of um, portavoz. I, I don't know how to say this in English. Uh, <laughs> portavoz. Yes. I like um, uh, um, a, a, a broadcaster. Or yes, a, yeah, kind yes, of, of polyamory. And it's in neither way for me, certainly. But I am noticing these changes. And I'm often thinking about how can we 
create community? What are the ways in which people are less isolated? What are the ways in which that people can become more connected, more grounded, more united? And what I am getting the privilege of witnessing in my room is that sometimes it is possible to be done through this growing way of being in a loving relationship, in a loving, sexualized, intimate relationship. So it's, uh, it's undeniable that there's something going on. And you know. in what you're talking about as well, I imagine in the future that legal questions begin to arise, say in a polyamorous scenario, questions of adoption, you brought up health benefits, those types of things. But have you been following certain sort of legal implications of, of these new forms of relationships that are becoming normalized or mainstreamed? Yeah, that's, that's a very interesting question. Not too many years ago in Vancouver, there was a first example of three people going in on the birth certificate of a child. And this was in the context, which now has this growing legal framework to accommodate, a context in which a sperm donor who wanted to be a participant in the life of this child was put in the birth certificate together with the two women who identified as you know lesbian women who were married and had this child. And so that was an example that happened locally. I think it would have been something around four years ago. And more recently, there seems to have been the example of three adults who, in a polyamorous relationship, parents were declared legal parents by a Newfoundland court. And this would have been, I think, the very first legal example of a polyamory of three being legally, I guess, authorized is the term, to adopt a child. Um, and the argument from the judge was something to the effects that there was no reason to think that that union, that connection, that, that way of being a family was not in the best interest of the child. And I think that that's really interesting because it does create a very significant shift in the legal framework that, that becomes possible. We may not see anytime soon a marriage between three people, but there are other ways to go about it when people, say, form a company, say a limited partnership, or incorporate to own property in a triad, for example. These are the ways through which people are still exercising their agency to not have to subscribe exclusively the, the patriarchal framework of the marriage in, in Adiyad. I think that these are interesting times. So, uh, Hilda, there's clearly uh, differences between engaging in couples therapy to being with somebody individually uh, talking about encounters of intimacy or issues in relationships. And I'm wondering if you can speak from your perspective in a clinical setting the differences that, that arise, uh, particularly in thinking through urban intimacies today in terms of individuals that you're encountering. Right. Yeah, there are different forms of intimacy, right? Uh, the majority of people or the mainstream signified for intimacy refers to the sexual encounter, but also there are intimacy in friendships, intimacy with ideas, intimacy with groups. And I think that in terms of the work that I do with one-to-one -one people, there's always this question about the body, which is the question of sexuality, what do I do with this, right? And that's a question that cannot be answered very simplistic. It's something that involves a, a process. 
Jean Kopjak talk about how sexuality adds an ontological malice. Lacan says everybody thought that Freud was answering the question of sexuality when he said precisely that it's an unanswerable, that it's something that we keep going over and over to try to come to terms with this thing that bites us in a way that surpasses our way to symbolize, to articulate with words. So then that's always the question. What do you do in terms of that? That's why my romantic view goes a little bit against the utopia of polyamorous, because I think what we were talking before about the transgression, love is not contractual. And then let's say that in this progressive city, there are some contracts. Okay, we are going to be able to fuck with this, but not with that, that kind of thing. Sorry for my Uh, Spanish, but then those arrangements are going to be challenged. And I have experience with friends and I have experiences with clients that they make certain arrangements and then there's always the little transgression, right? The the cheating. I really like, for example, the concept of non-identity philosophies, for example, Adorno, Lacan as psychoanalyst that, that really embraces this negativity about love. You love regardless of symmetry or reciprocity. I brought my book of, just, just because I really wanted to, um, I'm just going to, in Minima Moralia, Adorno talks about the demand by the subject of, quote, inalienable and uninictable human right to be loved by the beloved, unquote. And he answers, quote, the secret of justice in love is the annulment of all rights to which love mutely points. So forever cheated and foolish love must be. Ouch. <laughs> so that tells us a little bit of a non-romantic form of love and yet a radical form of love. So in spite of this arrangement that is a structural to love, that is not reciprocal necessarily, that there's always something that is going to disrupt it, still love, still pushing for that radical signification of being with the other. So this is something that it's an ongoing question in the individual therapy, right? Like, how do I do with my sexuality? What do I do in light of the transgressive drive that lives in me more than me? And how do I ethically reconcile desires that sometimes are opposed? I want to have some fun with someone else, but I also want to uh, maintain my relationship. And I think that maybe at some point in, I don't know, 50 years, we are going to start to see like really a, a kind of this modality of polyamory as mainstream. But I think that still difficult because what I hear a lot in the clinical setting is that sometimes some people are really open about that and, and have kind of, you know, examine and, and their own lives and challenge the conventions, but a lot of other people don't. But also something I wanted to say uh, after what you commented, Fernanda, about the effect of increasing sexual desire when the partner is having sex with someone. This is something that long ago, 
when I was, I don't know, 20 years old, I was starting my immersion into psychoanalysis. I heard an analyst in Mexico that said, affairs are a good thing in a couple. And I was like so shocked and so mortified and offended by that. But then that intrusion of a third in the dyad. The shadow of the third. The shadow of the third might shake the ground, might, might be very painful, right? Because then this whole notion of uh, fidelity, which I always say fidelity to your own nature first and negotiate the other. I always kind of maintain that approach, but it kind of moves the sexual and erotic energies of a couple. That thing, I mean, I'm not saying that is good or not good, as that analyst said, but the reality is that has some effects that if the couple wants to continue together, that might serve as a source of fodder for eroticism. Mm-hmm. I think it is so interesting that you would, would speak from this perspective. And I'm thinking that many couples in a diad are quite capable of bringing the shadow of the third in fantasy and mm. to work from that perspective to serve some of the same functions that others might have to do more materially in a polyamory. Now, I'm thinking that, you know, as you're bringing in Adorno and I'm thinking about Althusser, and then it didn't take me long to go to Foucault. I guess mm. I am a Foucaultian at heart. I'm thinking that potentially there is a dialectic way of accepting the need for this consistent lack and still bring, you know, a very structured, modern, rather than postmodern, material lens mm. to understand what may be some of the effects of creating different ways of managing the tension and the maintenance of that lack that always leaves desiring at the same time that we also move around the legal framework to accommodate something other than just what was initiated, imposed, subscribed to, not as a movement towards truth, but a move towards power in terms of the legal framework of marriage. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder if there is a, a space and a dialectic to hold both at the same time, rather than one or the other. Right, right, right. right. Yeah. So, One of the things you mentioned when we're talking about the good life in an urban setting, there's this sort of trend towards uh, living alone that you mentioned, Fernanda, before we, we talked before, and, and how you sort of place this historically and what you think the affect of that is, because this is a recent phenomenon in some sense in terms of uh, how mainstream it is and the extent and the percentages of people in urban setting that are living alone. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think it was Eric Klinenberg that helped me to think about that with his book, Going Solo, in which he notices the trends across the ages. It seems like for our species and the hundreds of thousands of years of our experience, we've always lived and needed to live in groups to survive. And in a very recent history, as in from the 50s on, there has been this increasing trend in living alone. The example that he gives, which I think is, uh, he gives many, but this is, this is a very poignant one in my view, is that in New York City, but in Manhattan itself, in the 50s, there would have been a very, or in the U.S. in general, there would have been a very small percentage of people who would have lived alone, something around 9%, if I, if I remember correctly, but that 
currently in Manhattan, in, in the island of Manhattan, there is almost a 50% rate of people who live alone. And that's, of course, across the lifespan. So there may have been people who lost their spouse, who might have been in a traditional family setup, and then ended up being alone in their very old age. But there is also the young who are coming into adulthood by leaving their parents home early enough and moving into this configuration of living alone. And that was never possible before in the history of our species. And it, it helps me to think about how there is probably something going on here, much a very significant trend that is going on here that is also probably going to inform how we are going to do marriage moving forward, how we're going to do intimate sexual relationships moving forward. And I don't know if this is your experience, Hilda. I have a number of 30-some-year-old, I'm going to gender this, women, cis women, who are in Vancouver, who are conventionally very attractive and who have good jobs, who are very educated, and who are seeking relationship and who are highly frustrated. They're feeling the frustrations of not being able to find pairing up in the ways that you know they grew up thinking that was ideal and that they have their felt experience as being ideal. This isn't just, you know, other people's lenses imposed upon them. They themselves want that for themselves and having real difficulties with establishing that kind of connection or speaking to their difficulties in finding and establishing that connection. And often they're coming and thinking that there is something broken about them. And I get really, you know, I get really scared that in other therapy rooms, there is some kind of an exploration as to who they are that is, you know, even if not overtly, in some ways pathologizing of what they are and this interminable search for what it is about their, you know, love blueprint from the past and that is informing their not being able to pair up. And I just don't want to lose completely, I did say I was a Foucauldian, this much broader trend in a sociological way that may also be informing this moment in a city like Vancouver, right? We can't just lose track of that. I think that there is a real question here about these women who come into my room, who in other times, in other social, historical, cultural spaces would have probably been paired up already or would be more successful in pairing up, but that in Vancouver are starting to think that there is something about them. And so I worry about other therapy rooms and how that is being signified there. And I wanted to call attention to the fact that there is something a lot bigger happening that's informing this moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, definitely. I always go with that lenses, particularly with regards to the larger issues of what are the repercussions of race or racism, class or classicism in the individual problems and how that has been internalized. Ferenc would call the internalized aggressor, which was already discussed by Freud, but Ferenc uh, marketed. <laughs> so yes, those things are very important to engage in in dialogue uh, with regards to that particular socio-political element that influence individual problems. Yeah, I share a lot of similar situations, particularly among women, but also through men. That that's why I was saying that it's a 
called Lonely City because a lot of people are looking for love. You know, sometimes I have this fantasy, like in a movie that I saw long ago by... He's a therapist and he wants to start a love agency. I have that fantasy sometimes. Oh, this could be like a good one. But I could never do that. But anyways, you know what also I see? And this is kind of maybe uh, reaching a little bit out of our core discussion of um, urban setting. But it is related in a way. I see a lot of um, the intimacy, especially among single and and it's it's getting more common one only child the relationship that is developed with the parents are very intimate right it's very very close but it happens also with people who are not only child and how that kind of intimacy might have developed a form of emotional incest and when I say that I know that Deleuze and Guattari could be slapping my face right away but sometimes we have to suspend the sociopolitical in the consulting room to really engage with the ways in which the individual is deriving certain painful enjoyment, masochistic enjoyment from ways of remaining a child rather than an adult, rather than getting that separation that needs to happen to be able to engage in other love relationships. I see that a lot in terms of that relationship with uh, parents or family in general. To Almost be. as in a postponing of adulting, is that what you were mm-hmm. meaning? Yeah, 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 yeah mm-hmm. like kind of the adulthood until early 40s. A, a deferral. A deferral, 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 yeah. That obviously affects the ability to position yourself as a subject of enjoyment rather than an object of enjoyment for others. As people are living longer lives as well, the questions of intimacy that come up with seniors or people in long-standing relationships or in the context of how it comes into the clinical settings, what are you, what are you finding? Okay, I'll take a step at that first. (laughs) I think that that's another really interesting question. I think that at first I was hearing conversations in my room about how some people may be inherently polyamorously inclined, whereas others might have been more monogamically inclined. And now what I'm hearing is, again, a positioning in a spectrum in which at different phases of one's lives, at different times at one's lives, there may be a particular kind of inclination that will show up. Maybe in an, in an earlier married life, people may be comfortably settled in a monogamic dyad. And as life extends and as there is uh, the possibility of other experiences, then there may be a contemplation of a polyamorous experimentation or experiencing or shifting. And so the fact that we're living longer and longer bears tremendous influence in how romantic, intimate sexual relationships unfold. Now, in addition to that, and that's me always bringing the sociological lens, we can't lose sight of the fact that along this really long life, something else that's collapsing is maybe the number of institutions that before might have been really supporting 
of the marriage and the diet. So religious organizations, the notion of being surrounded by neighbors that you're going to be raising your children with, rather than, say, taking a job across the world and starting over in a different city with your wife or with your husband and that more conventional, you know, diet. So I think that together with the extension of life, there is also the collapsing of these institutional structures that also informed the conventional marriage. Right. And also that that is deeply connected to the neoliberal economic model of the social bonding. It's being diluted into these rigidities of what is to be accepted and what's not. That's part of my current dissertation in, with regards to the, the mental health institution. What allows really for exchanges that are based on community and what becomes something that is mainly determined by the markets, determined by the kind of search for surplus value, even if uh, that is completely devoid of any meaning for the community that is working and is receiving services. So I think that that's absolutely a very important point. I really like the work that Fisher did around the privatization of the stress in terms of how all these things affect the ways we interact, the, the ways we are with others in the moment that we live currently. I wanted just to mention something in terms with older populations or uh, more mature populations. The difficulty, at least here in Vancouver, I'm sure must be different in Latin America, with regards to the touch, the lack of touch. Like we haven't touched here each other at all. We're touching each other yeah. all over now. So. No, but you know, when I go to Mexico, it's so shocking because we are talking and people are like touching my body all the time. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I forgot about that. So the lack of touch is something super important in, in this city. I really like when there's people out there saying free hugs <laughs> because particularly this uh, population of Vancouver, we don't have that within the culture. It's it's a very boundary based in terms of your space and the and the importantly bubble. consensually based. Yes, yeah, and very, very, very big, right? Very big uh, bubble of consensual touch. And then I hear a lot of the older people complaining about the lack of touch because they live alone and they don't have sometimes that availability to be hugged and touch, which so, is important. Such essential. an important point. Yeah. And if we had more time and maybe that could be another another talk, another day about the you know, the neurophysiology of, of touch and how it helps people to effectively regulate. But before we go into that direction, I, I'm sure we won't have time for, for that today. I was thinking about what you said in terms of neoliberalist frameworks. And what I was thinking is when I spoke about the numbers in Vancouver, the numbers of uh, single dom in Vancouver, I was thinking about how if you go into the direction of other provinces, usually provinces that may have been more central or right-wing inclined and provinces that are more also, or, or areas, you know, around the central Vancouver or even down to the south to the U.S., you will notice that people marry more. 
people marry earlier and they marry more often. I guess they marry more easily, I guess, would be one way of, of saying that, but we can, we can deconstruct that later. And I'm thinking that the fact that Vancouver is this progressive city, but it's also a city that within Canada is provided with the universal health care, you know, the welfare state provides this kind of support, may make it easier for people to not engage in a conventional marriage as they might have or they might feel that they have to do in the U.S. as a welfare state of two, as a, a social support system of two. I think that there may be something to be said about how in the United States or other countries where there isn't the universal health care, people's perception of a sense of protection for the self may be by joining legally in the framework of marriage. So I, I think that that's mm -hmm. another way to think about the politics of perpetuating exactly and perpetuating the conventional diet and how the state framework of support systems may also add on to the decision-making process that people engage in. I was going to ask you, um, Hilda, you'd previously said earlier in the interview this afternoon that, you know, 50 years from now, you see polyamory becoming a very kind of mainstream thing, but you're making the assumption that we're still going to be here 50 years from now. I know, right? And so these questions of, you know, climate, climate Armageddon, authoritarianism, the politics of the moment... And how do those kind of polarizing aspects and kind of end of days scenarios, like every moment has big political moments. There was the nuclear question in a previous era, but how do these um, affect intimacy today? Yeah, it's a very, very important point. I was actually thinking about that when you were talking in terms, for example, of having children. We are like really struggling at the moment with significant crisis, emergency, the most number of displaced people, stateless people since World War II, the effects of significant extinction, mass extinction of species in the shortest geological time. Like this is serious stuff. And I know every time has been a political crisis of sorts in during the Cold War, World War One, World War Two, etc. But this is a very, very different one because it involves our home, nature. And this is impacting the way people are approaching the questions of do I bring a child into this world? And we are getting a lot of suggestions from researchers. So those things are one of the most uh, significant issues. So that for sure is going to determine the way we relate in couples. There's going to be something that happens. We are kind of envisioning a flood or something because of the sea level rising. Do you encounter this in a clinical setting? Yes. Very much, very much. People are talking Tons about of that. anxiety around yeah, that. Yeah, anxiety, mm -hmm. big, big anxiety. You know, I have been doing this for 25 years, and I've never encountered the kind of sharp anxiety about the sociopolitical conditions that we are living. So people are asking themselves this question, what I am going to do, how can I help, how can I join Others. So, so there's a political inquiry that I haven't seen before. It is very palpable constantly. 
But I was thinking about this kind of modality. I think it's the phalastery, phalastery or phalantery, a utopian model of kind of living together, like a communal living. Maybe that is going to, with less space, with less available resources, maybe that's going to be something that changes the intimacy. But at the moment, there's still the questions of, I would say the, the most sharp, significant question is the reproduction. And the having children. I don't know if you encounter something else in um, the consulting room. No, I think that you spoke very well to this topic. And towards the end there, I was thinking of what was the name of the of this? I think it's a it's a title from the I want to say the '80s, "Stranger in a Stranger Land." Is that what it was? Which was a fictional account that seems to have inspired some of my clients to also think about polyamorous ways of being in a family that's also informed by this more catastrophic views and realistic views of Armageddon that you know seems to be you know about to lie ahead. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. Yeah, I, I also was thinking that maybe it can be the polyamory structure in the future, but also Going back to the friendship, I think that many people that come to Canada, immigrants, settlers that come here, they don't bring all the family. And then you have to create your tribe, your community, your village. And many times that is created through groups of friends that you hang around with. I have the privilege of having a group of good friends that I call mi familia. Mm -hmm. Like they are from all different parts of the world and then it it creates that sense of unconditional support and intimacy that is not necessarily sexual but that it gives you that sense of uh, groundiness in community mafia mafia mafia. that comes from my family in terms of thinking through relationships and intimacy what do you think of as the good life today I think that it is being met with unconditional positive regard in a relationship that's interested in your internal life in which you mutually reciprocally offer that to the other. I think that is a central piece of developing the energy, the drive to go, you know, sublimate the other aspects of your erotic desire into productive tasks. It's being met with unconditional positive regard. Hmm. from a non-judgmental perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I like that you brought sublimation there because yeah, when I was talking about the difficulties of dealing with the sexual drive, yeah, you can repress it, you can turn it into the other and instead of feeling a masochistic, you become a sadist, which is not a good thing for anyone including the individual, or you sublimate, and you sublimate in something that has to do with transforming that energy into something that doesn't betray you, but that allows you to live a life of a more satisfactory uh, nature. And I absolutely could go similarly like you, Fernanda, with this unconditional love, radical love. And radical love means that you have to see the object you have to enter losing the object what do i mean by that is that you are not trying to engage in imaginary rivalries and in imaginary property of that object but that you know that 
that is just the fantasy and that you just unconditionally love without looking for that reciprocity, just for the sake of moving forward with your best energy, doing with others, but disengaging from these imaginary ideals and mainly the reciprocity or the symmetric. And you just go for what it is rather than what is not. And I think that I would like to maybe pose an invitation here to other therapists or other clinicians to engage with that further offer of unconditional positive regard to clients who are presenting with whatever it may be and who also participate in polyamorous relationships or who subscribe to BDSM practices. And that may have nothing to do with their reason for being in our room. They may be coming in with, with a very different presenting problem that has nothing to do with neither one of those fields. And I think that there is, there is a need for therapists and clinicians to, to further refine their lens, to notice that it's not up to them to problematize something that our clients are bringing into the room. It is up to our clients and their autonomy to talk to us about what it is that may be problematic for them and, and then stand from there. And to hunt down the academic works, the, um, the training texts that will help them to refine this lens. Yeah, so. So, so focusing on the radical truth of the subject rather than trying to feed that big question with uh, pre-digested knowledge. Fernanda, Hilda, thank you so much for joining us on Below the thank Radar. Thank you. Thank you, Em thank you and so Hilda. Mm -hmm. thank, thank you. It has been a pleasure. Yes. Thank you again to Hilda Fernandez and Fernando Souza for joining us on Below the Radar. To learn more about their practice, work, and the research they do, you can check out their respective websites. We will share both of those in the episode description below. As well, you may remember Hilda from our previous episode that we did with her. We'll share her conversation on psychoanalyzing love and desire in the description as well. On our next episode, Stuart Point and Joanna Havdank from SFU's Community Engaged Research Initiative, or CIRI, will join us. Communities are the sites where action, experience, histories are happening. So it's not surprising that researchers are out in the community. Whenever you consider having any community-engaged projects, how do you approach it? How do you lower the barriers for nonprofits to be part of that? How do you empower their voices? How do you bring them forward? And checking yourself in that process as well, because I don't think that's really recognized sometimes from the researcher's perspective that, that it's even there. And I think that's definitely a challenge. Stay connected with Below the Radar by following us on Facebook and Twitter. And you can listen and subscribe to Below the Radar wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Overcast, and Player FM. If you love what you're hearing, we'd appreciate it if you left us a review, as it helps other folks find the show as well. As always, thank you to the team that puts this podcast together, including myself, Paige Smith, Rachel Wong, Fiorella Pinios, and Kathy Fang. David Steele is the composer of our theme music, and thank you for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode of Below the Radar. Thank you.